All right. Welcome back to the next installment of the Come Follow Me series with me, where I'm a Bible church pastor looking at what the Bible has to say. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is going to be looking at Genesis 18 to 23, and there's a lot to see in those six chapters. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to look at two events in those six chapters because I want to make these shorter. These episodes, I want them to be closer to 15 minutes than 25 like they've been. So the two events we're going to look at are Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham sacrificing Isaac. So Genesis 19 and Genesis 22. Let's just go ahead and jump right into it. In Genesis 19, you've got two angels, angels who you can read more about in chapter 18, but two angels who are coming to the city of Sodom, and they're going to have an interaction with Lot. Lot is Abraham's nephew, and he's living in Sodom. And Sodom and uh, Gomorrah, two cities that are usually spoken of together, there are other cities around them, uh, Two, but Sodom and Gomorrah are usually paired up and spoken of as one city, even though uh, technically there are, are two. And uh, Lot is living in Sodom, and he has an interaction with these two angels. So let's start reading in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night. Wash your feet, and then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, No, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them, baked unleavened bread, and they ate. This is where the story gets interesting. So they're in his house, and he's hosting them. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to, to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. So we'll stop right there. Um, these men from the city get really, really intense. They try to bust into Lot's house. Eventually, they're stricken with blindness, and uh, Lot and the angels are uh, kept safe. And if you know the story, Sodom and Gomorrah end up getting destroyed by fire and brimstone because of God's judgment. But one thing I want to talk about here is uh, verse 5, when it says that the men of the city were calling out to Lot for the other men that they may have relations with them. We know that these are men, young and old, from the city, and they're calling out to try to get these guests in Lot's house, which they didn't, they didn't recognize them as angels, but rather as other men. And the men said they wanted to have relations with them. Now, this Hebrew word for having relations is right here in the middle column with the blue box around it, if you're watching on, on video. Uh, I can't pronounce that word correctly, I'm sure, but yada, we'll say that for now. Uh, that's the Hebrew word being used. And it, it's a word that means to know, to know intimately. And it's often used in Hebrew as a euphemism for sexual relations. For instance, if you look at the Hebrew Bible, the first 
three uses of this word are all in Genesis, of course. And uh, you can see them here on the screen highlighted in red in the Hebrew. The first is that Adam and Eve, when they partook of the fruit, they knew that, they're, that they were naked when their eyes were open. They knew that they were naked. So there's our word. But then the next two times have to do with sexual intercourse. In chapter 4, it says that Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived. Later in chapter 4, it says Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son, and they named him Seth. So um, we see that this is a Hebrew word in the Old Testament with precedence to uh, mean sexual intercourse, and that's the word that's being used here in Genesis 19, verse 5, where men are wanting to have sexual intercourse with other men. There are some people out there who teach this passage as though uh, homosexuality wasn't the big issue, that homosexuality wasn't a big deal. Um, it was really that the people of Sodom were inhospitable. They weren't showing kindness, grace, hospitality to uh, Lot and his guests, but instead they were um, forcing themselves upon them in an inhospitable way. Well, that is a, a liberal take on the Bible, trying to skirt the real issue that's at hand. The real issue at hand here is that uh, there was a large amount of sexually immoral behavior going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. You've heard the term sodomy. Well, it has its origins in, in this city. Um, you've got men here who are calling out for other men to have sexual relations with them, homosexuality, and Lot himself saying that's wicked. It's an evil deed. It's an evil thing to do. And then, of course, the cities end up being destroyed by God's fire and brimstone. But on top of all that, we also have from the book of Jude in the New Testament, Jude is just one chapter, but starting at Jude 5, it says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality. There's the word immorality. Uh, it's where we, the Greek word is where we get our word for porn. Okay, it's um, tied to the Greek word uh, porneia having to do with sexual immorality. They in indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. They are exhibited as an example in the undergoing, or in undergoing, the punishment of eternal fire. So Jude's commentary on Sodom and Gomorrah is that they were practicing sexual immorality, and that's why they faced the judgment of God, the wrath of God. So just want to point that out. And, you know, of course, you can read the story for yourself um, and see all the things that God's doing in that. But don't let anybody tell you that their sin problem was just pride or uh, that they were inhospitable. But in fact, they were practicing homosexuality, which is a grievous sin. It goes against God's design that we have earlier in Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, where God has made man and woman, put them together. Man shall leave his 
father and mother and be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. That's God's design. And here in the city of Sodom, they were rejecting that for gross immoral behavior. Okay? So that's a note on that. But let's look at Genesis 22 now also. Genesis 22. Um, you've got the story of Abraham and, and Isaac, where Abraham's been called to go sacrifice his only son. And I think you can understand, even if you don't have children, you can understand just how heart-wrenching this is. The promised son, Isaac. God promised uh, Abraham this son through the unconditional covenant that we talked about last time, that God here has said to Abraham, uh, I'm going to give you a child. And here he is, Isaac. And now, just a few chapters later, God says, I want you to sacrifice on the altar your only son. Abraham gets up to go do it. And uh, this is a pretty familiar story. He gets up to go do it. He um, goes to the place that God appointed. They go to the altar. He puts his son on the, on the altar. And as he's about to plunge the knife through his son, God calls out and says, stop. Stop. Now I know that you have faith. There's a, a ram caught in a thicket over there. Go sacrifice that ram in place of your son. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. So that, that's an amazing story. Um, now, now what is, what's interesting about this is a lot of people want to force a, uh, what's called typology onto the story, where they say, and for good reason, they say this is a picture of God sacrificing his only son in the gospel. Um, for God so loved the world, John 3.16, that he gave his only begotten son. Well, here's a, um, an illustration, a foreshadowing of that. Well, there are some problems with that. Number one, the Bible doesn't ever make that connection for us. Not saying that connection isn't there based on that. Uh, not saying that 100%, but I'm saying that is a pretty big factor that we want to consider. Number two, there are details in the story that are different. Abraham put Isaac on the altar. Um, Isaac didn't lay down his life willingly, like you would read in Philippians 2, 6 through 11. I'm not saying Isaac fought Abraham, but I'm, I'm saying in Jesus's life, um, he wasn't put onto the cross by the Father. He willingly took up his cross. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that's a little bit differently, different than the Abraham and Isaac story. And then also, you have this really big issue. Isaac didn't die. Isaac was not sacrificed. And so it's not an illustration of a father sacrificing his son because the son wasn't sacrificed. In that sense, the ram caught in a thicket, uh, the, the ram that's over there caught in the thickets is a, perhaps a better type of Christ than Isaac. But then you have the issue where, where that ram uh, definitely wasn't obedient. That ram isn't even in the image of God. That ram doesn't you know, have a, an understanding of what's going on. There is no willingness whatsoever on the part of the ram. So um, there are some things that we can see that are tied to the gospel message for sure, but to make this a, a hard type of the gospel is not something that we can do um, perfectly here. So you just want to be careful when you talk about that. But let's look at, uh, after this, the angel of the Lord 
um, it was the one who called out to Abraham to stop, not, not to kill Isaac. And the angel of the Lord, it says in verse 15, called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Uh, verse 18, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now what's interesting about this section is... Um, you can, if you if you don't remember the earlier chapters, you can look at this and say, Abraham earned his blessing through this. Because after all, it does say, um, because you have done this thing, verse 16, because you have done this and have not withheld your only son, I will greatly bless you. And verse 18, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Well, let's not forget the earlier chapters. Again, the last lesson, uh, last video or, or podcast episode, however you're listening to this, I talked about the Abrahamic covenant and spent a lot of time talking about how it's unconditional. There was no part in God's covenant with Abraham where he said, it's an if-then exchange. If you do this, then you'll be blessed. God just straight up said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to give you a blessing that's going to extend to the whole world. It's unconditional, totally unconditional. So what's going on in chapter 22? Why is God saying this now? If he's already said, I'm going to make your descendants like the stars of the heavens, why is he now saying, because you've done this thing, I'm going to make your descendants as the stars of the heavens? Well, it's not because he has somehow changed the terms of the covenant. Notice the word covenant doesn't come up at all in Genesis 22. He's not talking about a covenant that he's making with Abraham. But he is reaffirming the promises of the covenant in what he's saying to Abraham. He's saying, you've done this thing, and you're following me in faith, and this is how I'm going to bless you. He's not changing the terms of the covenant, now making it conditional. It is still unconditional, but he's reaffirming the promises. You could think of it this way, too, when you go back to um, Genesis 18, which we didn't look at in this episode. But Abraham is pleading with God and saying, you know, what if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom? You know, would you still destroy it? Or what if there are, and he keeps making the number smaller and smaller. He's, you know, interceding. Is he actually changing God's mind there? by that interchange? Is God getting something out of that interchange and saying, oh yeah, Abraham's got a good point. I was going to do this and I'm going to do that. No, that's not what's happening. Um, in Exodus, you have Moses pleading on behalf of Israel before God and asking God, do not destroy them. And God had said he was going to destroy them. And then Moses says, please don't. And then it says that God ended up not destroying them, that he, he changed his decision. That's what the text says. Does that mean that God it makes decisions like us where he says he's going to do something and then he can be convinced out of it? Well, no, that's not it at all. But we see that God does establish means by which he brings about his plan, doesn't he? And he puts things in the hearts and minds of men 
to act. He puts motivations. He puts desires. He puts faith in the heart of men. Uh, we see in the New Testament that faith is a gift in Romans 12 and perhaps some other places we could look to, like Ephesians 2. But, but it's a gift. And so is man ever actually changing what God has decided to do? No, he's not. Is man a robot then or a puppet where God is just tossing man around and making man do this or that or the other thing? Well, not exactly, no. Is God in charge? Yes. But is man a puppet? Well, no, 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 no. Man's not a robot, not a puppet. Categorically deny that. But we do see God sovereignly bringing about his purposes by establishing in the hearts of men that which he wants to to happen. And that's what's happening here with Abraham, that God is guiding and directing Abraham through this whole process. And it's not that Abraham upheld his end of the deal, and there was a possibility that Abraham wouldn't have, and the whole covenant would have crumbled. That's not the case. But instead, it's that God is working through Abraham's life, and as a result of Abraham's exercise of faith here by putting Isaac on the altar, God is saying, I'm going to reaffirm these promises I already made to you unconditionally. And that's very important. Just because God uses the word because a couple of places in the text, that doesn't go back and change the unconditional nature of the covenant from chapters before. All right, so a couple of thoughts on that. I hope that was helpful and interesting to you. Um, Didn't quite get 15 minutes or less, but better than last time. So let me know what thoughts you have. Thanks for joining me. God bless.